This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to present the original radio broadcast from 80 years ago during the days of the war, with the occasional more recent radio program about the war. Today, we have something a little different. It's a look back on some key figures and moments from World War II from Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story. The series was hosted by Harvey over ABC from 1976 until his death in 2009, occasional guest hosting by his son, Paul Harvey Jr. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Now... The rest of the story. Now, it's anything goes. I mean, pornography comes directly into your living room now through a cable. But once upon a time, you would have had to leave the country, literally leave our country to see a pornographic movie or buy a sexually explicit publication. When Alan was living in Europe, he bought and read a dirty book. It was widely available there, and much of the material raised the young American journalist's eyebrows When Alan returned home, he brought the book with him, and then he noticed that same book was on sale here in the United States, almost the same book, a censored version. Journalist Alan did not believe in censorship. He felt it was the American public's right to read even the most unsavory literature. In this case, a Boston publisher, the Houghton Mifflin Company, was printing a laundered version of this dirty European book at $3 a copy. Alan was outraged. So... He brought the matter to the attention of New York newspaperman Amster Spiro. Both men agreed that there was no justification for the censorship, and then Allen proposed that they publish their own version of the book in the United States, the original version, translated into English. And while the fumigated Houghton Mifflin edition was selling for $3, Allen and his friend would make their no-holes-barred edition available for 10 cents a copy. Allen spent a week at his friend's home in Connecticut, working painstakingly on the original translation, and after his eighth, eighteen-hour day, it was finished. Allen's edition was published quickly. In days, the book was offered at booksellers and magazine stands all over the United States. A half million copies were sold during the first ten days on the racks. Then the predictable legal action. Then the courts ruled that Allen's publication was to be taken off the shelves 
and out of the stores, and it was. But by then, Alan had made his point. The worst thing you can do to a dirty book is to try to clean it up. Californians know and respected the man that young journalist became. It was United States Senator Alan Cranston. Yes, of course the name is familiar to you. But before you evaluate what he did back in 1938, uh, you should know something about the litigation that got his publication pulled off the shelves. The author of the original book had sued Allen for violation of copyright. It had been the author's intention to publish a watered-down version of the book in the United States because he did not want Americans to know the rest of the story. I said the author of this book did not want Americans to know, as you will soon, the rest of the story. And young Alan Cranston and fellow publisher Amster Spiro did want us to know the long-range plans of author Adolf Hitler. The long-range plans, German military expansion, liquidation of the Jews. And so they, Cranston and Spiro, published the unlaundered version of the world's most obscene book. Mein Kampf. Mein Kampf. And now you know the rest of the story. Now, the rest of the story. Senny broke out in a cold sweat. As foreign consuls in wartime know, the conceivable consequences of disobeying the orders of his government meant death. Senny was facing death. And yet how could he refuse the many who were also about to die? The Jewish problem it was being called. The Germans were rounding up Jews by the thousands who in turn were vanishing, and the consul knew that they were being killed, maybe worse. So he had wired his government and told him so. The first reply came back quickly, do nothing. So the consul had sent a second cable, a desperate request for transit visas, for he knew that the Jews to whom those visas were denied were as good as dead. The answer from the Home Office was more specific and more insistent this time. It said, and I quote, concerning transit visas requested previously, advise absolutely not to be issued, no exceptions, and no further inquiries expected. The consul might have tried to talk himself out of becoming involved at the last minute, he could have made a convincing argument. Who were these Jews to him anyway? At a previous post, he'd been introduced to some people who, he later was told, were Jews. And he knew that Hitler was blaming the Jews for all of Germany's problems. Aside from that, he knew practically nothing about this group of unfortunates. The Jewish problem was clearly not his problem. And yet, could he turn his back on fellow human beings? And the consul decided... He would not. And this is the rest of the story. Over the following 19 days, expressly contrary to the orders of his superiors, the consul stamped and signed nearly 6,000 visas for local Jews. Time was running out. A cable ordered him to join his nation's embassy in Berlin. There was a train he must catch. 
But up to the very moment of his departure, the consul dispensed transit visas to Jews in the street, on the way to the railway station, at the station itself, even through the open window of his train. As the train was pulling away from the platform, the consul stamped and signed more visas. For these people he neither knew nor understood, he risked his life. And although he managed to escape the wrath of his government, he was eventually forgotten for his role in the rescue of thousands until 1968, when one of the Jews he had rescued recognized him and sent word to the Israeli government. The former diplomat was twice officially honored by the Israelis as a righteous Gentile prior to his death in July of 1986. In his native country, an hour-long television documentary has now described and applauded his humanitarianism during the Second World War. And in Israel, a grove of trees has been planted in his memory. For back in 1940, when Seni was running his country's consulate in Kovno, Lithuania, when he was protecting thousands of Jews from advancing Germans, his own nation was allied with Germany. Seni was consul Sempo Sujihara, and the country he dared to defy so that thousands would not have to die was Japan. And now you know the rest of the story. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He was not always a master chef. In fact, he first became interested in cooking as a schoolboy. A brother was stricken with scarlet heat fever. Mother was thus preoccupied. So he, the healthy boy, began cooking the family meals. That's how it all began. Mother would call out recipes from the sick room upstairs, and he would follow them as best he could. Simple dishes at first, then more involved ones. Eventually, he was improvising with, with most extraordinary success. His vegetable soup was spectacularly seasoned. In its preparation, he employed a number of tricks. The subtle inclusion of chicken stock, for example, the precise sequence in which the vegetables were added, and uh, the whole thing was gently laced with boiled nasturtium stems. His peach and apple and cherry pies, he called it satisfactory. Everybody else said they were sumptuous. Before long, even the young boy's school friends respected his destiny as a master chef. He always said the best food is no better than the manner in which it's prepared. While still a young man, he attended a cook's and baker's school. But by then he might have taught the courses he took. His revolutionary concepts, such as the addition of flower parts to certain recipes, created quite a stir among his peers, eventually in the newspapers. But this is the rest of the story. When the master chef got married, his bride had no idea of his culinary prowess. She had warned him, in fact, that her own cooking ability began and ended with fudge. 
That's as much as I know how to make, she said, fudge. And she'd wondered why he had seemed so unconcerned. During their first months of marriage, dutifully she enrolled herself in a basic cooking class at a local YWCA. She did learn how to mix mayonnaise, but then promptly dropped out. Well, that was when her new husband smiled, stepped into the kitchen, and astonished his bride with a flurry of delicious chicken, pork, and lamb, seafood dishes. He amazed her with a baked bean recipe for which he later became famous. He demonstrated for her how adding melted butter to pancake mix allowed one to cook the pancakes on a dry griddle. He proudly showed her how throwing a sirloin tip directly onto a bed of coals would bring out the flavor as nothing else could. And he grilled, and he fried, and he chilled, and he boiled, and he broiled, and he sliced, and he diced his way right into his bride's heart. Now, you have forgotten, if you ever knew, that this master chef was a master chef. And yet among chefs, his recipes are followed to this day. And forgotten also is his skill at sewing. Oh, yes, it was he who altered his wife's dresses and expertly cooked her meals before he marched off to Europe and to war and into history. The master chef became a general and ultimately President of the United States. Dwight Eisenhower. And now you know the rest of the story. Now, the rest of the story. It happened once upon a winter time. The air was cool and clear. The tall pine forests were not yet blanketed in white. And it was on this country estate that a certain teenager would spend his Christmas holiday. He was 18, uncomfortably straddling the abyss which separates boyhood from manhood. He had not been doing well in school, though such frustrations would be set aside for the while. Mother was in the house. He and his cousin and younger brother were playing outdoors. Their game was called Fox and Rabbit. The 18-year-old, as eldest and fastest, would play the rabbit. The youngsters had been hunting him for 20 minutes or so. To avoid capture, he ran off through the woods heading for the old bridge. Now, this bridge was a rustic, rugged structure some 50 yards long. It crossed a deep, dry ravine. The boy was halfway across and completely out of breath when he heard his young pursuers approaching from either side. He, the rabbit in their game, was trapped. Well, looking over the bridge rail, he could see the tops of the young fir trees which were growing in the ravine. Perhaps he could leap onto one of those trees and slide down it like a fireman's pole. Surely the branches would break his fall. So, judging the distance to the nearest treetop, he climbed over the rail, spread his arms wide, and uh, jumped. But the boy had miscalculated. Merely brushing the outer branches, he fell 29 feet to the hard ravine bottom, where he lay unconscious and seriously injured. So what had begun as a children's game now threatened to end in tragedy. Well, mother was alerted, and her son, still unconscious, was carefully lifted from the ravine and carried to his bed. Attended by the finest available specialists, he would remain unconscious for three days. And even as he awakened, his troubles were only beginning. 
Among his injuries, one kidney was ruptured, an operation would be required at once, and after that, months of recuperative confinement to his bed. His convalescence would take most of a year. When he was fit to travel, his parents brought him to London. And it was there that the boy's hitherto directionless life found its course. Restricted from vigorous activity, he now found the time to study, ultimately passing the school examinations he had twice failed before. He also found time to visit Parliament. And with each parliamentary session he observed, he became more and more interested in politics. Once aimless and uninspired, he was now turned on, and for the rest of his life he would stay that way. He graduated Sandhurst, the Royal Military College, 20th in a class of 130. At 20 years old, he joined the Army Cavalry, served abroad, distinguished himself as a soldier and a journalist. You see, his 18th Christmas holiday might have been his last. But instead, after the fall from that bridge, after, after three days unconscious, he awakened to become Winston Churchill. Only now, you know the rest of the story. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. We hope these old-time radio programs entertain and help you learn more about what Americans experienced during the war 80 years ago. Be sure to visit brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts for past episodes and more information 